0: Hi, welcome to JP Morgan TV. I'm Tom Solopic from Cross Asset Strategy. We're here to discuss GLP 1s. GLP 1s and weight loss drugs have emerged as a key thematic topic this year and into the long run as well. So, and it's affected a number of areas of the market. We're joined today by both stock analysts and, and credit analysts to discuss this topic. And let's start first with Chris Schott from Pharmaceuticals. Chris, how are you thinking about how the market is evolving? and uh, how big can this become and what do you think are the best ways to play this space?
1: Uh, Thanks, Tom, thanks everyone for uh, joining today, yeah. So from my perspective, so I cover the large cap biopharma space here on the equity research uh, side of Morgan. The emergence of the GLP-1 category honestly is probably one of the biggest innovations I've seen in my sector in the last few decades. Uh, We're we're predicting the GLP-1 category and I'll go into a little more detail on this, has the potential to become a $100 billion annual revenue opportunity for my sector over time and really have a profound impact on a number of different um, kind of medical conditions that, that are out there. So I, I thought maybe just before we get into this discussion, maybe just to, to, to frame out why we're so excited about this category, it might just be helpful to put some context around what benefits these drugs are actually offering. So when we think about these drugs, they kind of work in two areas. They work in diabetics and they work in, in patients with obesity. So on the, on the diabetes side, and that's where a vast majority of the usage is today. The newer GLP-1s are offering uh, patient blood sugar control as kind of what you're trying to manage for these patients. That's roughly 50 to 100% better than anything previously developed. And these drugs are rapidly becoming a standard of care in the roughly 35 million Americans who have type two diabetes. What that efficacy means for patients is you're basically getting patients back to normal blood sugar levels. And that's the, you
0: know, if you think about something
1: like Lily's Monjaro, roughly half the patients go on this drug get their blood sugar back to normal. And that's something we've never, ever seen in, in diabetes studies historically. And then on the obesity side, and this is where a lot of the broader interest is coming in for, for these class of drugs, this has always been viewed as one of the big unmet needs in the healthcare space, but, but it's a category where the medications really just didn't work. And that's, that, that's changing now. So when we think about something like Novo's Wagovi, is the first of these, these newer agents, is offering about 15% body weight loss uh, you then look at Lilly's Monjaro, which is the next one up that's going to be approved later this year. We're thinking north of 20% body weight loss. And then you have next generation drugs from both Lilly and Novo that push efficacy into the mid to high 20s. So it's almost getting to a point that uh, you think about bariatric surgery like weight loss levels. So so pretty profound benefits for what's basically a once weekly shot or what it may, might eventually become a pill. And, and with that improvement, what we're expecting here is a paradigm shift where you're going from what today is viewed as an aesthetic category weight loss to one that's going to become a medical category so with that level of weight loss you're actually seeing patients with improved cardiovascular outcomes eventually going to be seeing you know kind of um, you know survival benefits etc uh, and I think the initial data when we saw this what some of the excitement was driven by uh, the first big study of this was was Wagovi. It showed a 20% improvement in cardiovascular outcomes. And that that kind of puts you in the range of what you see with like a cholesterol medication or a blood pressure medication. So really kind of a big new emerging category. Um, so what does that mean for revenues? I think about in my world. Uh, today, the glp ones is already a pretty big class. It's about a $25 billion uh, category of medications today. But as I mentioned earlier, we're seeing this growing to about $100 billion by 2030 and continuing to grow from there. Uh, what that means in terms of number of patients, about 4 million people on these drugs today. We have that increasing to 25 million over time. And we're seeing that you should split roughly 50-50 between diabetics and, and obese patients. And I think as some of my peers start to talk afterwards, I think it's important to keep in mind with these drugs, these are not drugs for everybody. So we're talking about, you know, we're, we're well above consensus, some of these numbers that we're citing, but we're really only talking about penetration rates that are in the 30s in terms of percent of diabetics on these medications and even lower in, in kind of the mid teens uh, in terms of, of where this is going to go in the obesity market. And then finally, in terms of the ways I play this in my space, Eli Lilly really is the story here. Uh, this has been uh, remains one of our top picks. What we're seeing is this, this huge opportunity for them. We, we expect that Lilly and Novo basically split this market over time. So what that means for Lilly is about a $50 billion revenue opportunity for them over time. And then what that's going to do for Lilly's earnings is a company that's earning about $10 per share today we think there's an easy path to get to $40 by the end of the decade, and then a lot of healthy growth as you get into the 2030s and that there's no major patent expirations on this business for a very long time. Uh, I'd also highlight, just thinking about kind of more broadly, um, uh, Richard Bosser, our, our European pharma analyst, has been recommending Novo. And, and again, as we mentioned before, this is, this is largely a duopoly. So we think that, that both, both Novo and Lilly are, are, are great ways to play this theme.
0: And one more quick one for you, Chris. What do you see as the biggest unknowns in your
1: category? Yeah, so the biggest note is, I guess a couple ones I'd mention really quickly. The first one we're probably having the most discussion on is, will payers pay for this drug? So $100 billion is a lot of money. It's going to come from somewhere. Uh, Our answer is yes, the payers are almost going to have to cover this, given the cardiovascular benefits you're seeing with these medications. What I would highlight, though, is the price needs to come down. So these drugs right now cost about $6,000 per year on a net price basis. We're modeling that gets cut in half. Uh, over the next decade or so, so that by the time you get into the 2030s, these drugs cost about three thousand dollars a year. And I think for the amount of benefit you're getting these patients, that's going to be something that the payers have a easier time digesting. So I think when you see a lot of the headlines on payer coverage right now, it's it's kind of pushing back on you know six thousand is probably not the right price for these medications ultimately. Uh, I'd say maybe the second big question is duration of therapy, and that's a, it's a big question in the obesity market. And I think something that's probably relevant for everyone on this call. Is, is this medication going to go on for six months, nine months, lose some weight and just never use them again, or are these medications you're going to use forever? And our view is that it's not one size fits all. So our, our rough estimate here is you're going to have about a third of the patients stay on the drugs chronically. You're going to have another 30 or 40% of the patients who maybe lose weight for a year and then cycle on and off the medication. So what happens with GLP-1s, if you stop taking the drug, you usually regain a lot of the weight you lost. And there's going to be a, uh, probably about 25% of patients who go on these medications just honestly don't like them and will stop using them after a few months. So I think duration of therapy is still evolving, quite honestly. Um, and then the final thing I'd point out is, is capacity. So the rate limiter in our model right now is not demand, it's basically how many pens can Lilly and Novo make, and that they sell pretty much every pen that they produce. Uh, these are not easy to make products. Uh, Lilly and Novo are putting a lot of money into CapEx. Um, I do think that capacity issue, though, starts to go away in 2026, and what addresses that is we're expecting that there's oral versions of the GLP-1, so you can kind of move this to a pill instead of an injectable, and that should really address some of those those kind of bottlenecks on the supply side that we're going to be dealing with 2024, 2025, et cetera. So when you think about kind of impacts for other sectors, it's going to be a few years before you really can get to scale where this is probably going to be relevant for, for many other groups.
0: Thanks, Chris. Let's turn to Robbie Marcus covering uh, medical supplies and devices. Robbie, h- how is this impacting your space? And, and of course, some of the names in your space have been hit pretty hard. So there's a question of how you uh, uh, navigate the positioning going forward.
2: Thanks. Yeah, share prices have been hit pretty significantly Here is there's a fear of GLP-1 impact. Um, I think Chris said it well, though, before, is that this is not one size fits all. And particularly as you think about the cardiovascular benefits, they're good, but they're on par with other medications. And I think that's the important thing to keep in mind here as GLP-1s impact medtech or rather, in our view, don't particularly impact medtech stocks, is that we've seen multiple classes on cardiovascular benefits, whether it's statins or others that have had similar or better cardiovascular benefits and medtech is still a highly innovative highly successful growth industry. So our investor conversations continue to center around the potential impact to medtech sector from GLP-1s in the future. And that's key, it's the future. It's not today, it's not the medium term, it's the long term. How big of an impact will they be? Which subsectors will be impacted? How should we think about worst-case valuations? And while these are Driving the questions um, that are moving the share prices downward. We actually think the bigger impact recently has been capital allocation. Long onlys continue to sell shares in med tech, hedge funds continue to deleverage. And so, if we had a size, is it really an investor perception versus a capital flow question? It's the capital flow with capital moving out of healthcare, moving out of med tech. And hedge fund deleveraging essentially having a net selling impact we think as we look at our internal data it's much more the capital impact rather than the investor sentiment which in my conversations continue to be broadly supportive of medtech and skeptical honestly of the impact that glp1s will have as chris said it's going to be a huge drug class and that's not really up for debate but there is a huge uh, debate raging on whether it will have a minor, moderate, or major impact. I would say for cardio and orthopedics, my personal view and what I think the broad uh, investor sentiment is, is that it will not have a material impact. Um, And then for diabetes and sleep apnea, there's more of a debate. So as I think about which stocks in my universe uh, are the most impacted, it's it's those three, it's it's insulate and dexcom in the um, in the diabetes world and inspire and sleep apnea. With insulate, we see no imminent threat to the pumps, whether it's type 1 or type 2. Type 1, GLP ones have no impact um, and, and that's well documented. Uh, type two, I think there will be an impact. Uh, both to the, uh, the number of patients using insulin and the number of patients using insulin pumps. Uh, the thing to keep in mind, though, is today, right now, the number of type 2 pumpers are only about 5 to 10% penetrated. So pick your worst case, whether it's a 20%, 30 50% headwind to the number of type 2 patients using intensive insulin. I'm in the 20%, the 25% camp in 10 years or so. So fine. You know, the number of of pumpers moves up to uh, 10 to 20 percent or not even. And insulate still has plenty of room of growth in the type one. So I feel like the type two uh, impact to insulate is ring fenced. It's a manageable and quantifiable impact. And to me, insulate looks very attractive here. Dexcom, quite honestly, we don't expect any near or long-term impact to CGMs from GLP-1 agonists. In fact, we see multiple data sets put out by Abbott and Dexcom that CGM utilization actually increases once patients start a GLP-1. As Chris talked about, GLP-1s are about a net price today in the the mid-single-digit, thousands, maybe moving down to 3,000. In the future, CGMs are roughly $1,000 plus for uh, a full year of 365 days of use. You get about a 5% weight loss benefit from them. And these are some of the uh, most well-loved and most adhered to devices in MedTech period. Uh, So we do actually see a huge role for GLP-1s plus CGMs in all of type 2 patients. And we're going to be seeing studies coming out from Dexcom and Abbott as well over the next 12 to 24 months showing exactly that. We think that'll be key both for insurance companies, doctors, and patients to continue using this very useful um, and quite honestly difficult to make product. And as it relates to Inspire, there's uh, data coming out in the spring from Novo Nordisk called Surmount OSA, which will show GLP-1s. With, um, with and without CPAP machines and sleep apnea patients. Keep in mind, Inspire is uh, an implant in a subset of those patients, and based on our doc checks, we see this as a neutral event to Inspire, and quite honestly, in more cases than not, a, a positive event. As more patients that are too obese to get the implant today lose weight and move on to label, uh, so that trial will be coming out in the spring, and we think will be a positive catalyst afterwards to allow investors to move back into Inspire, which is a great growth asset here.
0: Thanks, Robbie. Let's move to Brett Gibson, covering U.S. credit research and uh, specializing in uh, healthcare and insurance. Obviously, insurance may be an interesting case because th- this can be both good and bad for in, in different parts of insurance. So w- what's your take, Brett?
3: Uh, Thanks and um, uh, welcome to everyone. So I'm Brett Gibson. I'm the investment grade uh, analyst covering healthcare and insurance companies, as as was said. Um, Within healthcare and talking about some of these names as as well as the health insurers, I'd like to build on a number of the things that we've heard from Chris and Robbie um, and kind of specifically as it relates to the credit markets. So I have the unique position of covering healthcare companies across all subsectors, uh, not just one specific subsector. So we already heard fundamental views on the pharmaceutical and device spaces. My view lines up there. there is a potential positive for specific, you know, a positive for specific pharma companies, a potential negative for device companies. though the extent of that is unclear and more theoretical at this point. Um, but expanding subsectors for a more holistic view I think about this as basically an unknown as of yet headwind uh, for future earnings for device and hospital names uh, and other services names, and then a, a positive for managed care, pretty pretty consistently managed care because they can manage the price of this. They can manage how they deal with this and how they develop this as a payer. And, and as well on the PBM side, it's positive for life science names. And it's, uh, again, positive for some some pharma names, especially as we think about new players into this category. Um, So given all of these realities, let's talk about valuation moves, what we've seen in the market, technicals, where do we stand, um, as well as where there are some opportunities and how to think about trading this. So in contrast to the really large moves that we've seen in equities, um, and really for all the interest this is generating, Spreads for device names and hospitals to date have really hardly moved um, except in a few cases where there's specific identifiable impacts that feel a little bit more near-term. We'll talk about that in a second. Um, Similarly on those that are positively inclined, the the pharma names, uh, managed care, um, we just haven't seen that translate into into levels. So Lilly itself had already been separating from its primary peers, Merck and Pfizer, on evaluation perspective, that has continued to some extent, but less related to this category, more related to other factors that are happening. <clears throat> um, in terms of those that have seen the weakest performance and how to think about them in my world, the names that I've been most focused on have been Baxter uh, and Fresenius Medical, And that is a name that is covered uh, out of London. And these are really the only companies that have seen spread widening. And in both cases, it relates to the uncertainty over the long-term dynamics of GLP-1s to the dialysis market. Okay, so the spread moves have been kind of a little bit on the Baxter side, a lot, very significant on the Fresenius side. Um, But it's really notable that these two names Are ones that really already faced a number of operating headwinds beyond just GLP1s coming into this. So this isn't isolated here. Um, If I expand to include some high yield names, which is covered by uh, Rishi Parikh and somebody I work closely with, then we're talking about lower rated dialysis names, and DaVita specifically, distributors of sleep apnea products, um, and diabetes-related names. Um, but ultimately, for these names, the case of names where they were otherwise facing operating challenges or distressed capital structures, and have been ignored or shunned to some extent by the market. So to wrap up, thinking about just how to play this on the credit side, uh, our view has been that uh, investors should be buying Baxter on weakness. Okay, so admittedly, Baxter from credit perspective is a completely different story from that from what's going on in the equity side and how Robbie looks at it, but our recommendation is for the simple reason that the company is heavily in debt reduction mode, okay, driven by multiple strategic transactions, and that that fact will be a positive tailwind for the credit that should last sometime into next year. So especially when you consider um, that many of these potential impacts are multi- multiple years off and will take time to play out, um, and the fact that Baxter is less exposed than many of the dialysis providers to, to new patient starts, we think that now is a pretty good entry point for some of these tailwinds as they come and they reduce debt. On the dialysis provider front, so that's uh, Fresenius covered by our London credit team and uh, Davita covered by our high yield team. Really our view is that there's, this is one specific issue among a host of other issues. And that for that reason, we've been somewhat negative on these names um, that despite significant widening, now is not the time to be jumping into these names. For Xenia specifically is um, a, a candidate to uh, lose its investment grade ratings over time. And then last, I would just say that um, our recommendation would be to sell device long end paper. So that's 30 year paper in anticipation of tens, thirties curves uh, widening, um, which is where these dynamics would first show up. So I said, we haven't really seen it in spreads, but in our market, 30 year bonds have had a very strong technical, given broader interest rate moves, um, and that has taken credit curves to very, very tight levels. We think that unwinds over time, and especially as you see things trickle into our market, that would be the first place uh, to see it. So that's it for me.
2: Thanks, Brett.
0: Let's turn to Andrea Toshira, who covers uh, beverage, household, and, and personal care products. Obviously, this is one of the places that we're worried about getting hit based on the curtailed consumption of, of beverages, right? So, Andrea, what, is, what do things look like on your side?
4: Thank you, Ton, and everyone for joining us. I'm Andrea Teixeira. I cover U.S. beverages and household products on the equity research side of J.P. Morgan. From my sector's perspective, GLPs have been in investors' minds for months now, uh, but Walmart, the Walmart commentary this past May calling out to a shift into health and wellness. And also, most recently in August, the CEO also um, talked about not only the, the shift continuing, but also specifically called out to the popularity on some of the GLP drugs. So adding to the discussion and giving more emphasis to the impact on food and beverages, the Wall Street Journal also um, put an article a couple of weeks back um, on the topic and put some fuel on the fire for the snacks makers, such as Mondelez, which is covered by Ken Goldman, uh, and also the Pepsi, which I cover on the performance immediately after the, uh, the article. I also collaborated with Kim and the European Staples team in publishing a research based um, on the real consumption data based on receipts from Americans who were using the GLPA drug at the time we did the survey. Uh, actually, it's done by independent um, uh, data provider numerator uh, and contrasting those receipts with the rest of the sample, So like Americans who were not uh, on the drug. And the main conclusion is that the overall impact is relatively small uh, at this point. Uh, it may lead to an overall 1% volume decline, uh, but the specific some categories, including snacks and sugary drinks, which relates to my coverage as well, could be more impacted vis-a-vis the total 1% decline. On stock specific calls, beverage names have faced over the years, I would say, less headwinds than can uh, than may talk about from a food perspective. Uh, but they have faced, you know, disruptions over the years, including the sugar attacks in many parts of the world, which led to changes in packaging and basically reducing volumes anyways and going from more of a premiumization of the liquids uh, into zero to low calories. Uh, as we're going to talk about specific names, some of them are like calling for two thirds of their portfolio with less than 100 calories as we go. And therefore, I believe they can pivot and innovate with products with lower calories as they go. Uh, management teams that reported so far with the benefit that we didn't have by the time we put this survey out uh, have said that they have yet to see any impact, if if anything, from the current 4 million uh, drug users, according to Chris Schott's uh, research, in the U.S. alone. But they acknowledge that there is insufficient data for now for to, to make any inferences or conclusions either way. So the specific names in my coverage that to highlight, uh, it is fair to say that the high calorie and snacks names or uh, sugary drinks are most impacted. In my coverage universe, I covered the largest, um, uh, sh- um, basically the largest snack producer in the world uh, on the south side, which is uh, Pepsi, um, with an overweight rating. And it's also the second largest carbonated soft drink manufacturer. Uh, it would be technically the most negatively impacted in our coverage universe if GLP drugs would curb, curb, really curb appetite and cravings across the board. Um, Pepsi has 55% of its sales in convenience food, which is the, what we, they call convenience food snacks, with the exposure to the U.S. being about 45% of sales. Again, the U.S. exposure, uh, assuming that these drugs will be more uh, available in the U.S. Uh, and in, Euro- in Western Europe, so that's a, a point to highlight um csdns next represent about 20 percent uh of or of like total us consumption on track channels, so that's important for them but i would say post um the fireside chat that we did post earnings with the cfo they discussed briefly how they're going to be able to tackle if anything they have said again that there is no Really impact at this point, but they have said they called out um, a lot of like um, headwinds for folks to adopt. Uh, but that being said, I think it's our job to see how you know the, how they could be able to uh, do this portfolio transformation. And I do believe that they have been uh, they they have the benefit of the doubt in that sense because they did reduce fat and 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 have done a very good job in portion control. Uh, and that being said, you know, now they're targeting two, two-thirds of their beverage portfolio volume with less than 100 calories or less. And then added sugars also um, also not being in, 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 in most of their portfolio, uh, as well as reducing the, uh, the sodium on most on, on of their portfolios, 75% of their portfolio. Um, the, uh, now moving on to the Coca-Cola company, also overrated, Coke. Is the largest obviously carbonated software drink uh, player in the world um, but about only 17 percent of the volume is in the us so it's a very global company as we all know um, and in total they've been doing a good job shifting and pivoting through uh, known carbonated software drinks um, uh, portfolio so right now um, it's uh, about two-thirds of their uh, sparkling portfolio if you will comes in packages containing 100 calories or less, and also um, about like all the 19 out of the 20 brands that they offer uh, have zero uh, sugar alternative and 28% of the global portfolio is in low or zero calorie um, products or so low or zero sugar um, products. Then lastly, on Kirik Dr. Pepper, which is more US-centric than most, um, is the third largest software drink manufacturer in the US um, and holds about 24% market share of CSDs. Again, part of their portfolio is also in cough pods through Keurig, um, which uh, obviously can actually be a beneficiary as, as consumers may uh, move into, into coffee uh, to go for their caffeine um, uh, need. Um, and also related to that, you know, it's just 35% of those uh, products that are no cup um, you know on the coffee side would be thirty five percent of the US revenues. Um, I think I would stop here because um, on the beer side, I also covered the um, the beer names, but according to this survey that Ken and I put together, uh, we haven't seen really um, like at least the users so far. Uh, calling out that they will cut on alcohol, which is pretty interesting. Um we haven't seen a big push outside of, you know, of of the, the high calorie snacks and uh, and softer drinks. So therefore I believe like we we I think it's too early to to think about the impact on constellation brands on Molson Cores. So I'll stop here and pass it back to you Tom.
0: Thanks, Andrea. Let's let's turn to Ken Goldman, who covers food producers and retailers. Of course, similar cre- questions for you, Ken. And it's very interesting to see how this food food consumption basket evolves, you know, on or off the medication and the impact on on carbohydrates in particular.
5: Thank you. I, I'll be brief because I, I do, as you mentioned, have some overlap with Andrea. Um, you know, we did put this um, this question to our third party. Uh, data provider with Numerator, and just fascinating to see that the the one through six categories uh, which seem to be most affected uh, are all snacks, right, it's from popcorn to crackers to chips to portable sweet snacks, right, uh, things like that, and so, um, you know, what's interesting about our survey, just to reemphasize, it shows what users are actually doing rather than what people say they'll do. And I think especially when it comes to their bodies and their health and their practices with, you know, putting things in their body that they know aren't necessarily good for them, people are not necessarily always truthful with themselves and especially not with others. Just to see the actual activity, I think, you know, really helps validate a lot of what we're seeing here. It's early, you know, we don't want to make any dramatic statements yet, but seeing this data, you know, really kind of solidifies in a lot of investors' minds some of their concerns since GLP-1s have come into focus about companies that produce higher-carb, sugary um, uh, snacks. So when you think about Mondelez, when you think about Hershey, um, they're right in the crosshairs of of some uh, bearish concerns. Um, On the opposite side, you know, there's this mid-cap company we cover called Bellring that does – protein-oriented nutritional shakes. They could actually be a beneficiary here, and if nothing else, they'll be less of a a quote-unquote loser. Um, And then you also have uh, retailers like Sprouts, Farmer's Market, that leans fairly heavily toward fresh produce, toward uh, meats, uh, things that could theoretically benefit from consumers shifting toward the traditional perimeter of the store as well. So, We will see, I think, somewhat of a bifurcation uh, in consumers' behavior. I think it's too early to tell exactly where this all uh, ends up. But that kind of overhang, that black cloud that's above um, consumer staples, at least food and beverages right now, I think is going to be with us for for quite some time. And that's holding some long-onlys back who otherwise might be looking at the valuations in my group from jumping in um, uh, with both hands. So... Uh, I'll pass it back to you there.
0: Thanks, Ken. Now let's turn to Carla Casella from U.S. Credit Research. Carla leads the high-yield effort in consumer products, food, and, and, and retail. So a lot of the same issues maybe that uh, we heard from Ken and Andrea, but it, w- what's your unique credit version of it?
6: Thank you. Um, I'm, so I cover um, have, cover food, beverages, tobacco, consumer products, retail, across the spectrum, so investment-grade, and high yield. So I do overlap with Ken, Andrea, as well as our restaurant and retail analysts. So I kind of echo their commentary on a lot of, a lot of what they said on the food and beverage side, but a few comments here. Um, In the debt markets, we're definitely reacting a lot less to this than the equity markets. Um, And I think that's fair. Uh, Case in point Smucker's raised financing just um, last week. To fund the hostess purchase, and they were able to issue bonds in um, in our markets at fairly good prices. Um, and I'd say, you know, I still get the question from investors on the drugs, but from a credit p- perspective, what what companies do from capital allocation standpoint um, matter more. So what they're going to do with their free cash flow, leverage, and priorities towards either dividends or buybacks are going to be more important, unless it's a major earnings impact that's gonna affect free cash flow. Um, So I think the bigger risk from a debt standpoint may be that if stocks remain weak, that some of these companies step up their share buybacks or equity-friendly activity to, to support their stock, and that could be negative for credit. But I'd be somewhat surprised to see it because most of the companies we cover across the investment grade are really committed to maintaining that strong balance sheet. They wanna maintain a strong investment grade rating. And for most of the high yield companies we cover, they're trying to delever. Um, so just a couple of credits I should mention that 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 they didn't touch on. On the beverages side, um, I cover ABI, so another big beer. And say similar to what Andrea said, we're not hearing or seeing as much pressure on beverages. ABI is also, much more broad than just the U.S. Only 24% of their EBITDA comes from the U.S. business, so um, we think the companies focus on deleveraging. Um, they just announced a three billion bond buyback. They're out there with tenders in the market right now. That's going to matter more for the credit than the equity. So we continue to like um, ABI here, and, and we'd buy it on weakness if there was um, any pressure from GLP ones. Um, and then from our food coverage. Um, Treehouse Foods is the only other one I would mention. It's a private brand snacks. We're neutral rated on it. Um, if the but you know it could get hit by the same snacking impact that that Ken discussed. Um, but if the consumer is really pinched from spending more on healthcare, that's probably a slight a slight benefit for private brands and and Treehouse is all private brands. Um, I have a few other beneficiaries that that can can call out the protein. So, um, you know, consumers do need to consume more protein when they're on these drugs. So they don't lose muscle mass. Um, JBS, PPC are two of my buy recommendations on the debt side. Those are worldwide uh, beef, chicken, and, and pork producers um, across the two of them. And then across my restaurant coverage, I cover um, Convenience store in Murphy USA and then restaurant, um, quick service restaurants, Yum! Brands and restaurant brands. And while on the equity side, those are coming up as targets and we're getting questions on it, um, these are really the the restaurant companies, quick, quick service restaurants, they're worldwide brands, very diversified um they target a low income consumer they get pick, they get benefit when consumers trade down into qsr so we think they're somewhat insulated by their consumer not having as much access early on and by their global diversification um, Murphy is a gas station operator, so their are convenience stores across the South and Southeast. targets. They're, they're a value player in the market, so they would target a lower-income consumer. So again, probably less of the population that ends up being on the drug, um, but that's still a bit early to say. And then I've gotten a few questions on food service. I cover U.S. food, Performance Food, Aramark, and Cisco. Um, I think it's a stretch to say they're broadly impacted because they sell both Meals and they cater to both meals and snacks into the businesses they service. Um, so I I I would say it's a stretch to say that they're going to be very impacted. So I've not seen enough um, to to drive a buying opportunity in any of those. And then just one one comment on couple of the retail and the names that I cover. So I cover Kroger and Albertsons. Um, we're actually overweight or Albertsons, neuter, neutral Kroger from a debt standpoint, but. It's early. Um, but they could see the same benefits as Walmart as people focus on health and wellness, eat and cook more healthy meals. Um, that would drive people to the periphery of the store, which is a more profitable area area for them. So um if there was any real trade-off in those, I'd see it as a buying opportunity.
0: Thanks, Carla. And for subscribers of JP Morgan Research, I'm going to provide links for, for some of our recent GLP 1 research. In particular, I'd highlight an excellent compilation piece uh, from Nick Rosato that includes all of the work from uh, the, the stock analysts on this call. And I'll also include credit research from, from Brett and Carla as well. So thank you to Chris, Robbie, Brett, Andrea, Ken, and Carla. And thank you all for tuning in to JP Morgan TV.